Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I am James Barty in Washington. Today is Thursday, November 17, and here are some of the stories we are covering. An East African Regional Force Commander visits a volatile Eastern Congo city. General Jeff told media of Goma that they came to bring peace in Eastern Congo, but they have a mandate which has some tapes. Kenya's president deploys special police units after violent crime surge. Somalia's government plans to reopen education centers in territories recovered from Al-Shabaab militants. Political freedom alarm is raised as Equatorial Guinea holds presidential election this Sunday. The UN says Nigeria's development is unsustainable and urges family planning. Malawi's Rights Commission wants to know the findings of the country's public service review task force. The public is interested to know what were the findings, what are the issues that are necessitating that uh, public resources should be rooted the way they have been rooted. And Namibia restores export permit for a Chinese mining company despite bribery investigation. Those stories and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. The commander of the East African Community Regional Force, Major General Jeff Yanga of Kenya, was in Goma, the capital of the Democratic Republic of Congo, North Kivu province, yesterday, Wednesday. Eastern Congo is the epicenter of the M23 rebel operation, and reports say the rebels are within about 16 miles of the city of Goma. General Yanga's visit came as Kenya deployed more troops in the DRC on Wednesday. Journalist Al Katanti Sabiti Jaffa is in Goma. He tells me that Goma residents were expecting to hear a battle cry against the M23. Instead, he said they heard a message of peace. The commander of East African Community Regional 4 arrived in Goma today from Nairobi. He is a general from Kenyan Armed Forces. General Jeff arrived with another troops of Kenyan forces to join the first troop coming last week on Sunday. And General Jeff did presser where he told media of Goma that they came to bring peace in Eastern Congo, but they have a mandate which has some tapes. The first tape, which is the most important, is talks, diplomacy. So for them, diplomacy will be the first thing before fighting. He's not coming to fight. M23 or other rebels, but to talk with them first and to promote the peace talking which is ongoing in Rwanda processes and Nairobi process. Jaffa, what was the expectation or what is the expectation of the people of uh, the region? What were the people expecting from the military commander? The people of Goma or all the eastern Congo were thinking about fighting against militias, against M23, especially because when the president of DRC announced the coming of this force, he said they are coming to fight M23. And as Goma is under a threat of M23, as they are 20 kilometers north of Goma, everybody was very happy to see this Kenyan force coming because they thought that they come to fight M23. But unfortunately for them, the commander said he didn't come to fight, but to talk faith. And as local of Congo, they don't want 
any negotiation with M23 as the government itself say M23 is a terrorist group, so they can't negotiate with them. So let's say locals of Goma got a deception because they won't get what they thought. They thought that this force come directly to open fire on M23, and it won't be like that. How is the peace process? I mean, is it possible to reach a peace process with the M23? He said uh, he didn't come for only M23, but the reason of the deploying of that force is for all militias. So first thing is to talk with them, to negotiate with them, to do a diplomacy way, and then a disarmament. And if this two-first track doesn't succeed, they can now see how to open fire. That was reporter Jaffa Al-Katanti speaking with us from Goma in the eastern region of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Kenyan President William Ruto has ordered the deployment of special police units in the capital after a series of violent daytime attacks that led one doctor to issue a warning on social media. Victoria Amuga reports from Nairobi. The Tuesday deployment of the General Service Unit GSU and Rapid Deployment Unit RDU Police is part of an intervention approved by the Cabinet to reduce surging criminal activities in Kenya's capital, Nairobi. President William Ruto says the Special Police Unit will increase security surveillance. The GSU police are usually deployed to handle riots or extreme insecurity situations. The Daily Nation newspaper reports that officers from the unit were spotted patrolling the streets Tuesday. Some security analysts in Nairobi described the government's approach to the situation as quick but unsustainable. Security expert George Musamali told VOA that special units are not the best solutions to the crime problem. According to Kenya's National Police Service, Muggings and stabbings in the capital have increased. In one incident that circulated on social media, a man on a motorcycle snatched a phone from an individual in a parking lot in broad daylight. On Monday, police released a list of crime hotspots in the capital, warning the public to avoid them. Nairobi is Kenya's largest city with a population of nearly 5 million people. Victoria Amunga for VOA News, Nairobi. The Malawi Human Rights Commission's President Lastro Chakwera should release the findings of the country's Public Service Review Task Force. The president commissioned the review last year, chaired by Vice President Solos Chilima, to examine government allowance, employment contracts, and procurement systems. Chikonde Chijozi is a commissioner of the Malawi Human Rights Commission. She tells me the public wants to know the recommendation of the review. If you remember the genesis of the whole task force that was set by the president was to look at how public resources are being wasted through procurement, government contracts, and also through other engagements with our government agencies. It was a way of uh, bringing public reform in government and ensuring accountability in how government resources are being managed in the public service. So everyone was hopeful that uh, after the task force had given the report to the president, the public would be given the opportunity to engage with the findings. And uh, when we talk about access to information and uh, the whole essence of the Access Information Act is to ensure accountability in the public service. 
As for the Commission, we thought and we believe that he has a responsibility to share with the public. What are some of the details that you are looking for in this particular report in case it is released? What are some of the things that are in the public interest? The public is interested to know what were the findings, what are the issues that are necessitating that public resources should be rooted the way they have been rooted because he himself isolated the issues that have actually necessitated the current waste of government resources and corruption. And he himself identified that the way things are run in government right now, the public service needs reform. So the people want to know what was recommended to government. Is this the same report in which uh, President Chakwera accused Vice President Solos Chalema and others of receiving kickbacks from a British businessman? No, 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 no. It's a report that he had initiated himself and had made the, the vice president to chair, and then he had put in other experts to assist the president to ensure that uh, there's public reform in terms of public service. When you talk about public service and reforms, are you talking about uh, working conditions, salaries of public servants? Yes, yes. It includes that, but it's also issues of procurement in government and contracting in government, how services in government and contracts are given. So your commission is an independent body, am I right? Yes, we are an independent body, and uh, we are also a a government-funded organization. So how do you respond to some people who might ask if your commission is delving into political matters? How would you respond? No, no, not at all. Uh, I think for us as a commission, we are only picking out human rights issues. You know, there is always a thin line between the political issues and human rights issues because each one touches on the other. So as a commission, we are only acting within our mandate. Because as a commission, when we see that human rights are being violated, within our mandate, we cannot just sit down and watch that happening. And there are so many ways that our act empowers us to engage. So we have engaged with government directly through letters. We've had meetings with respective government agencies. We've done investigations. We've made public statements. So this particular position paper that we issued out two days ago is just one way of uh, us doing our job. We are also using taxpayers' money as commissioners. We need to be held accountable on how we are using that money. Commissioner Chijozi, thank you so much. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. Chikonde Chizozi is the commissioner of the Malawi Human Rights Commission. She was speaking with us from the capital, Lilongwe. listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I am James Barty in Washington. Today is Thursday, November 17. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. The United Nations this week said the world's population hit 8 billion people with more than half of the population growth through 2050 expected to come from 8 countries, 5 of them in Africa. Nigeria, already Africa's most populous country, is projected to double in size to become the world's third most populous with more than 450 million people. Officials are warning that without better family planning and corresponding economic growth, Nigeria's development will be unsustainable. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja. The UN's 27th edition of the World Population Prospects Indicator crossed the 8 billion person threshold Tuesday, November 15th, 11 years after it passed 7 billion. 
Officials say the population growth, despite generally declining global fertility rates, is a result of improvements in medicine and public health, leading to reduced mortality rates. The UN said about 70% of the growth is in low- and lower-middle-income countries, especially in sub-Saharan Africa. The UN estimates that countries in sub-Saharan Africa will continue to grow and contribute more than half of the global population by 2050. Nigeria is Africa's most populous nation and currently occupies the sixth position globally. By 2050, the country is expected to become the third most populated nation in the world. Officials say population growth must correspond with economic growth and development. Erika Goldson is the deputy country representative for Nigeria at the United Nations Population Fund, UNFPA. One of the things that concerns us as um, the UN is that this progress is not received equally across board. There are some citizens within countries who are denied um, access to basic health care education, um, their whole overall quality of life is affected negatively. We see this as an opportunity for the global community to come together to see that 8 billion of us have quality life. The United Nations Population Fund marked the 8 billion milestone at a conference in Abuja Tuesday alongside development partners including women's groups and non-profits. The UN predicts it will take another 15 years to reach the 9 billion global population mark and that low and lower middle income countries like Nigeria will account for 90% of the increase. Aminu Zakari, founder of the Center for Climate Change, was one of the speakers. As the world population grows, he said authorities need to pay attention to impacts on climate change. The number is interesting and at the same time is also posing challenges to our environment. We need to start looking at the natural resources. As this population increases, the quest for natural resources increases. I think we also need to start looking at our carbon footprint. Fertility rates have been declining steadily in Nigeria from 5.84 births per woman in 2010 to 5.25 in 2020, according to Statista. But that's still high compared to the global average. Nigeria is struggling to meet modern needs for contraception. Experts say the government needs $35 million annually to address family planning needs. Earlier this year, President Muhammadu Buhari launched legislation targeting high fertility rates by expanding access to birth control. But the UN said government action to reduce fertility would do little to slow the pace of growth over the next 50 years, but might cause an overall reduction in the coming half century. In 2020, the global growth rate fell to under 1% per year for the first time since 1950. UN officials and the experts say unless fertility and rapid population growth rates are accompanied by sustainable economic growth and development, many people will continue to face challenges. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. 
The Somali government says it plans to reopen education centers in new territories recovered from Al-Shabaab. This comes as education institutions, including the Ministry of Education, have come under attack from Al-Shabaab. The militant group has accused the Ministry of Education of facilitating psychological warfare against Somalia Muslims. The government responded to Al-Shabaab attacks and threats by establishing an education curriculum. Viewers Harun Maruf spoke with Hassan Kine, a retired senior official of the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, also known as UNESCO, about why Al-Shabaab is targeting Somalia's education system. The issue is really broader, in my view, and bigger than an attack on the education system. There is a section of UNESCO which uh, deals with how violence affects uh, you know, the education system worldwide. There is a, a variety of organizations, some of them violent, some of them non-violent, that are against how the direction the education system is taking. So in the case of Somalia, is an extreme version of that. It has links with religion and faith. And all that takes place within the context of a state failure, a very prolonged and uh, extremely volatile kind of state failure. So uh, in, in my view, Al-Shabaab benefited greatly from the vacuum that has uh, been created once the institutions of the state and the structures of the governments have completely collapsed. So it appears that this war is not just in the military front. There is also educational, ideological front. And there is competition for the young minds who are developing. How do you think the civil war impacted on Somali education and what can the government do in order to counter al-Shabaab influence on education sector? The government can do a lot and it is actually the role in, in the modern uh, state system. The world we are in today is based on the state system. The state is the basic unit uh, that defines the, the international system, international law, international jurisprudence. So the government has a, a central role and a legitimate role to organize the education system. The problem of Somalia is that the government and the state systems uh, have fragmented and eventually collapsed in a way that is very rare and unique and profoundly catastrophic. So the longer the government is absent, someone else wants to influence, indoctrinate young minds. This is common in all cultures and in all ages, everywhere. And one particular element that I want to mention is this. Al-Shabaab has, whether it is uh, partly propaganda or partly fact-based, is the fact that they have managed to dominate two critical functions of the state. One of them is the justice system. The other is the taxation. Uh, they call it, of course, in the Islamic way, zakat. Or, uh, but they have collapsed systematically and they have penetrated the system. Sometimes they use the infrastructure of the state to collect. So in a way, you can say al-Shawab has actually observed the role of the state. So as long as that they have that capacity, the issue of, uh, of the future of young Somalis will be in huge peril. That was Hassan Kina, a retired senior official of the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, also known as UNESCO. He spoke with Harun Maruf of Viewers Somali Service.
Equatorial Guinea presidential elections are scheduled to be held this Sunday, November 20th, but human rights advocate Tutu Alikad says the current campaign is undemocratic. The country is home to Africa's longest-serving president, Teodoro Obiang Nguema, who, after more than 43 years in power, is seeking his sixth term. Alikad talks to Ricky Stryak about the lack of freedom of opposition in Equatorial Guinea. No, freedom of expression or access to media has not improved in any measure in Equatorial Guinea. As we're heading into elections, I can tell you right now, we still do not have but the state information apparatus, that's the radio, TV, that belongs to the state. They only spews out government propaganda and the TV radio station owned by Theodorin, which basically is all propaganda about Theodorin. Members of the opposition, right now their CPDS, the Convergence for Social Democracy, is running again. Every single night, every single day since the election opened last week, they are given three minutes access to talk to the people, right? And even those three minutes are often very, very control what of the 10 ideas that I might have, what the radio TV chooses to showcase, right? What kind of opposition, if any, is there to the current regime? What does the current regime, what kind of explanation do they give for their continued, their continued decades in power? Um, think about this, out of a parliament of 175 uh, members, this is MPs and senators, there is not a single one at this point in the opposition. Not a single member of parliament out of 175 represents the opposition. Um, as we headed into election, they have allowed CPDS which is a long-standing opposition group in Equatorial Guinea, to run. This is after barging into the compound of another political opposition group, CE, Citizens for Innovation, arresting 175 people, publicly beating many of them up, including the political leader, Mr. Gabriel Zeobiang, and locking them all up. As we speak, 53 members of that group are still in prison. Equatorial Guinea has oil, they have uh, some kind of revenue. Is, is this um, also benefiting uh, the average citizen in the country? The average Equatorian living in EG today, if they're in a major city, Malabo and Bata, are living a life of poverty. And this is because unemployment is high. This is because corruption is high. This is because inequality is very, very high in Equatorial Guinea. One way you can see what's happening in terms of the average Equatorian. When you look at the, the politicians, where do they go? Where do they go to the hospital? They all fly to France, to Belgium, in the case of Obiang, to Mayo Clinic up in, in uh, Minnesota. And this is because we do not have decent hospitals in Equatorial Guinea. Where do they send their kids to school? They send them all abroad. That's because we don't have schools, decent schools inside Equatorial Guinea. That was Equatorial Guinea human rights advocate Tutu Alicant speaking to reporter Ricky Stryak.
And that's it for this Thursday, November 17th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for being our guests this morning. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are also on YouTube, where you can watch our TV shows, Africa 54, Straight Talk Africa, and Red Carpet. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa crew, I am James Barty in Washington saying, have a great day and please be safe whatever you do hello i'm douglas simpoga host of voa's reporters roundtable join us every thursday as we discuss important african topics and events i'll have a panel of african journalists and expert guests to discuss the topic at hand we take a deeper look at important african news topics that's Reporters Roundtable every Thursday at 17.30 UTC, right here on VOA Africa. Hello, I'm Carol Castiel, host of Press Conference USA. Coming up, a conversation with Molly Reynolds, an expert on Congress from the Brookings Institution. Molly will talk about the results of the midterm elections, which solidified Democratic control of the Senate, but saw the House of Representatives pass to Republican hands. What will be the promises and perils of the 118th Congress? A conversation with Molly Reynolds. That's Press Conference USA this Saturday and